God gives us life, breath, and everything else. In Him, we live, we move, and we have our being. He keeps on speaking. He keeps on transmitting. He continues to show up and never stops revealing. We have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pay attention in print, over the air, and on every size of screen. Our moleskin is open, our pen is ready, and the mic is live. Let's find God in culture. Well, we want to welcome you into a brand new podcast that we are starting, uh, talking all about finding God in culture. And my name is Drew Thurman. I'm going to be one of your co-hosts of this podcast, and I'm joined by Danny Wright. And uh, before we get going, we have a lot to talk about in this kind of intro episode as we're going to kind of lay the groundwork for what this podcast is going to be and what we're going to be exploring in each episode. Uh, but before we do that, we figured it would probably be important that you actually know who you're listening to and uh, a little bit about us. So Danny, why don't you start, uh, just give a quick introduction about you, your family, your story, and why this is a, a topic you're excited about. All right. Sounds good. Um, I uh, grew up in Reedsville, North Carolina, um, and I've been in the church since nine months before I was born. So there was a lot of time spent uh, learning scripture and listening to sermons. And uh, of course, I ended up then later going to Bible college and becoming a minister. Um, I've served in some different areas since then. Uh, I've been I've led backpacking and adventure trips. Um, I've served as a youth minister. I've served as a senior minister. Um, I've served as a chaplain. Uh, for Midas Automotive Stores. I've served as a chaplain at a Christian service camp. Um, I've been been around doing this, that, and the other. Uh, this fall, I'm looking forward to working with a program called Intermission, and uh, we're going to be uh, training up students uh, to understand what missions looks like and trying to see if God is calling them into missions by doing a 10-month uh, gap year program. And uh, so that's going to be exciting, too. Um, <clears throat> I think... I'm, I'm married to a wonderful wife, Melissa, who I've been hanging out with uh, for 33 years. We've been married 30 years, and um, I couldn't be more blessed to have her as my bride. Uh, two daughters, uh, Allie and Tori, who are very much alive during this uh, during this season of unrest in our country. Um, uh, ben, you know, they've taken part in a lot of the... Um, uh, protests downtown and been very involved in that. And uh, it's kind of exciting to see what God's doing in their hearts and in their minds. And it's amazing how much they're teaching me, Drew. Um, so uh, culture matters to me and it's mattered to me for a long time. Um, I think, you know, growing up independent, fundamental Bible believing Baptist um, kind of kept me in a bubble for a while. And, um, you know, we pretty much lived our own world. We were separate, and uh, my mom, my mom didn't like Christian music, much less rock and roll music. Uh, she can't. She still to this day hates any comedy show. She does not get humor, and she does not want to see it. And she thinks it's inane <laughs> if anyone else watches it. So, um, you know, um, but I mean, I was loved well growing up, and. And then I tell you, I, a lot of it changed at the National Youth Workers Convention uh, back in the late 90s. Um, I mean, I've been working with students and I had them, you know, loving all these Christian bands and, 
you know, we were going to all of these concerts and we were being a part of, you know, these music festivals and all this kind of stuff. I go to the National Youth Workers Convention and I go to Walt Mueller's session called Mars Hill Ministry. And of course, he's dealing with Acts chapter 17 and Paul's discussion in Athens at the Areopagus. And, and you know, um, I sat there and as I was listening to him, I realized I don't think I'm doing this right. <laughs> and I'm like going, you know, creating an alternative subculture is not what God has called us to. And so I was like really bothered by that. And we'll talk a little bit later about what his three uh, fold message was for us and how to deal with culture and how to encounter culture. And I went back home and I went, this all has to change. I need to teach students how to navigate the world and how to be able to properly navigate culture without being afraid of it, um, without, without recoiling, and to be able to, to go out and to be excited and alive as they meet what God is doing everywhere. Because God has not stopped moving. He has not stopped talking. He has not stopped revealing. And I'm telling you something. Uh, it's a ride that we will talk about, we will enjoy, and um, we'll learn a lot. Well, that's that's about as good of an intro as I can imagine. And uh, yes, I, I just need to get this out there from the very beginning, too. Uh, I wish my podcast voice was amazing as, and as sexy as yours is. So <laughs> I'm just going to be incredibly jealous. You know, you've got this deep, uh, very, you know, it's got a lot of characteristic to it. And uh, just, just remember, none of us like hearing our own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe James Earl Jones. Yeah. Surely. And Morgan Freeman has to. Okay. But I don't know about the rest of us. Exactly. Why someone has not let them do like an audio Bible. You know, that's, I'm, I'm all for that. I would just listen to that every single day if I could find it. Well, I do have Johnny Cash reading the Bible. That'd be pretty good too. That ain't bad. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I'm Drew. Um, my, I've been married for almost a decade now um, to my wife, Brianna. We have two uh, lovely kids, uh, Annie and Dottie, that are three uh, years old and four months. So in the midst of that crazy season, uh, during a pandemic, let me tell you, um, we've, we've uh, if I had any hair, you can't see me, but if I had any hair, I would be pulling it out. Uh, but we're surviving. Um, I am a third generation a vocational minister. My grand, my grandpa, actually, my grandparents uh, were missionaries, um, actually in Southern Africa for a number of years. Um, he was also a preacher, uh, a professor at uh, at a at a college. My my dad's been in located vocation ministry most of my life. Uh, thankful for that heritage, and because of that, I grew up um, very much in the Christian subculture. I was uh, did a lot of my formative years were in the 90s, which was kind of the pinnacle of Christian subculture, uh, as Christians were trying to mimic culture and create, that was the height of Christian music and Christian movies and all these things coming out. Um, I remember going to the Berean bookstore when I was... Um, you know, when I was uh, a kid and you would have uh, those like books that said, if you um, like this secular artist, instead, listen to this Christian one. And they were nowhere near like, you know, if you like, like Metallica, listen to Petra, you know, if you like Mariah Carey, here's Amy Grant, you know, it's like the worst comparison. So uh, I grew up in that culture. Um, I had the big trapper keeper of all my Christian CDs and, uh, 
you know, you know, listened very much was in that, that culture. And as I've grown up, I'm now, um, I've been in vocational ministry in, in several different places. I'm now uh, starting kind of a, a faith community of sorts, um, very decentralized, starting micro churches in the Boston metro area. Um, I spent a lot of time with spiritual searchers, um, people who are trying to figure things out. Um, and I realized, um, and I, I realized this long before I showed up here, but uh, I realized a while back that I really didn't have a, have a language to even talk to those people. Um, the church has been so built on a come and see mentality that if I didn't invite people into my little subculture uh, away from all the dark, scary world, um, as the kind of the church had postured itself in America for, for several decades, um, I, I really didn't have a language to even talk to those folks. And so part of my maturing and growing up has been leaving behind some of the, that, that mentality. Um, I mean, heck, I remember being at a youth conference where, you know, we, that we were so impacted by that, that we like took all of our CDs out and put them in a plastic bag and broke them. And I always kid around that I think like two months later, I went and like, uh, you know, burned them all from Napster. So I like, you know, <laughs> out of my guilt, broke my CDs. And then, and then I illegally took them back. Uh, so I was like, what did I do? Why, why was I so, um, but just having a more of this understanding as we're going to be talking about in this podcast of really having a much more thoughtful understanding of what culture is, uh, how we engage in it, um, and love just talking to folks, um, both who are spiritually searching and those that have, you know, maybe grown up in the church like I have, like you have, about what does proper engagement look like? Um, how do we interact? And so I'm excited for this podcast as uh, we, we just have the fun, um, you know, maybe to introduce. We're going to be, you know, not only talking about a lot of themes about how Christians interact with culture. We're also going to be talking a lot about, you know, movies. We're going to be talking about TV shows, books, uh, other pop culture, and a lot of other things. So it's going to be exciting to just dive into that and teaching those skills and kind of uh, having some fun embracing um, maybe, a, maybe a healthier perspective of what culture looks like. But before we go any further um, into that, and that's a little bit of who we are, uh, let me kind of turn the corner and have you, Danny, first, let's just help people first understand when we say culture, we can kind of just assume everyone knows what we mean when we say that. When we're talking about finding God and culture, what are we referring to? So why don't you maybe define culture a little bit for our listeners and maybe uh, set the stage for even our interaction and, and our engagement in it? Okay. Um, well, I... I, one of my favorite definitions that I've ever heard for culture uh, was at one of those youth conventions many years ago. Uh, and I almost want to give the credit to David Wheeler. I don't know if it was him or not, but uh, whoever it was, they said that culture is the soup we swim in every day. Um, it's basically um, that which we cannot get away from. You know, everywhere we turn, uh, we are confronted with it visually we are confronted with it audibly um you know and, and so it's just um it's what we see it's what we hear it's it's the messages that are being sent to us and transmitted to us and the ones that we are receiving and you know what we're not even thinking about receiving these messages they're just the messages we receive um and so so i mean i think um as we move along that ways i mean some of these things are actually ingrained in us and and they and they actually they actually play out in our minds, and we don't even realize that they're playing out in our minds. Uh, so we have been shaped and formed and formatted 
um, by the soup we swim in every day. And so I would say that that's culture. Um, and, and so I think that it's important for us to realize that we can have different responses to that culture. So um, when I went into uh, Walt Mueller's session uh, so many years ago, he mentioned three responses to that culture. He said, first of all, uh, we have the option of isolation. Now, isolation means that we close ourselves into our bubble and we pretty much create our own subculture, like you were talking about earlier back in the 90s. I was youth minister back in the 90s. So that's <laughs> what we were doing. We were creating our own little side subculture. And, um, and, we, and, we, and we get lost in that bubble and we try to act as if the world doesn't even exist outside those walls because we're not going to allow it to negatively influence us. And I think you would agree with this, Drew. That was all it was about, was that the world had negative influences. Not to mention that there were all kinds of good things happening out there in the world, but we would just completely close ourselves off from that and try to create our own good within this culture that we hoped would make a difference in that world. But I don't know how in the world you're supposed to make that much of a difference in that world when you create such large walls, uh, maybe thinking about somebody else who wants to build walls, and we want to build these walls. Um, and of course, we're thinking about the village. Um, you and I have talked about this before. The movie The Village was brilliant because these people were living in, you know, in, you know, in this culture that looked like it was from the 17, 1800s. But when somebody finally falls over the wall, they realize they're in modern day Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, because, you know, with Wim Night Shyamalan, it's always somewhere near Philadelphia. <laughs> and so it's just this idea that, you know, we isolate and we will just live our world you know, live our days out in this alternative culture. Um, I remember Steve Taylor saying, you know, and we drink our milk from a Christian cow. <laughs> and, and so it, it just, you know, we've done our own thing and we've created it that way. You know, we have our Christian blue pages that are actually in my Midas stores, you know, because you have to, you know, have a Christian come into your house. You'd never want to have somebody who doesn't know Christ come into your house where you might be able to have a real conversation with them. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. All right. So there's isolation. Uh, the second uh, thing that he taught us about that day was accommodation. He said accommodation is basically where we say, oh, I love it. Bring it on. You know, like the first time you hear some rage against the machine, you're like, turn it up and give me more of it. OK, uh, the first time you hear some uh, Wu-Tang Clan, maybe you're like, turn it up, give me some more of it. Um, but, you know, and it's just like you just take it in and you just and you drink it as quickly as you can possibly drink it without having any um, without having any uh, discernment. And without recognizing that that there is good and that there is also evil. So accommodation is not really what we want because it's it just it just sucks it in as much as we can take it in. And that's what we live with. Um, and the final one, we're going to change it a little bit from what he originally called it. We'll say engage in transformation. And and Drew, you and I have already talked about this. Some. It's just this beautiful idea that we need to. Um, go out into the world and engage with other people on their level. <laughs> we need to meet them where they are with the art that they know and the art that they understand with the media that they experience. And we need to be able to have conversant lives that can make real conversation and can have um, meaningful dialogue. 
Now, when, when Walt Mueller talked about this, he says, of course, we want to be the third kind. We want to be able to engage in transformation. And he said, we don't want to isolate or accommodate. Well, I have to disagree just a little bit. There has to be some isolation. Because if we don't know the scriptures, if we don't know the truth, then we're going to have a really hard time telling the difference between truth and lies in all of the gray area that we're going to encounter in this world. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of gray. <laughs> and and so we, you know, it's so sad. I remember a student one time uh, sitting in a room. I showed a clip from a movie called Loser. And it was a great clip. And Dan Aykroyd tells his son, he says, do you want to know the secret? You, do you want to know the secret to making friends? And he goes, yes. And I mean, I sat forward on my chair because I'm like, Papa Dan is going to teach me how to, you know, how to make friends. And he says, interested is interesting. And I went, okay. And so he, he continues to talk to his son, played by Jason Biggs. And he tells him, he says, if you'll be interested in other people, if you'll pay attention to what they care about, if you'll listen to them, they will care about what you care about too. And he goes on and he says, because people are basically good. And I was like, okay, I don't think I agree with you there, Papa, Dan. And so when it was over, I, the clip was over, I looked at my students and I said, hey, guys, um, tell me what you like about this. And I remember this kid, James, this kid, James goes, oh, I just love the fact that he said that people are basically good. And I said, James, do you believe that? And he goes, oh, I believe people are basically good. I said, James, will you turn to Romans three? I want you to start reading in verse 10. You know, if there's none good, no, not one, their throats are open graves. All this stuff that the apostle Paul says, he's reading about verse 14. He goes, okay, okay, I get it. We're not basically good. <laughs> and I go, yes, we're not. Um, but it sounded good for Dan Aykroyd to tell Jason Biggs that. It sounds true because some of culture has taught us that we're basically good. But scriptures don't teach us that. And so we have to know. So there has to be a time for isolation. So we can begin to know the truth so that we can go out and engage in transformation and be able to tell the truth from the lies. And uh, I also don't believe we have the corner on truth. God has the corner on truth. But those of us who say we follow Jesus, we haven't figured it all out yet. And so when we engage in transformation, what will happen is we might have the opportunity to help transform somebody's life. All the while, our lives are being transformed. No, that's that's gold. By the way, I just have to ask, was that a life house hanging by a moment? Uh, your ringtone? It, it was. And <laughs> Believe it or not, that's my 214. If we keep doing this at this time of day, that's my 214 ringtone that reminds me of Philippians 214 that says, do everything without complaining and arguing. That's and so right. at that moment in the day, I'm supposed to think about how I've done up until that point. And then um, usually it all falls apart after that. <laughs> so is so life, Lifehouse help you feel less like you're complaining? Like, Well, I mean, that song, <laughs> I, I preached a sermon about that song years ago. And what's really funny was one of my dear friends um, he told me later, he said, he said, I'll never forget that first sermon I heard you preach when you shared from that hanging by a moment. And, uh, it's, it's just a great song. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it was one of those songs that I heard and I immediately knew, uh, this is much bigger than the lyrics mm -hmm. that are on a page and much bigger than the tones and the notes and the measures that make up the song. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I want to go back. You talked about those three, those three things. 
uh, what isolation, accommodation, engage, transformation. Um, you know, maybe even taking a step back as you were talking, one of the things I was thinking of, because I'm uh, just very much constantly thinking sociologically and, um, you know, part of what's created this is for Christians, especially in Western culture, uh, this wasn't a, you know, five, four or 500 years ago, Christians weren't having this conversation because Christians were the dominant worldview that were shaping culture. So you couldn't really, to that definition you were giving earlier, swim in a stew uh, or soup that wasn't necessarily Christian, you know, um, it was just, you know, or at least that there was a God. Um, these were things that just every, you know, if you lived in Europe or America, these were things that just, uh, that just you took for granted. You know, I think I've heard culture obviously just talked about as, you know, shared beliefs or practices that a subset or a society kind of has, um, mm-hmm. and they follow very, very similarly. But obviously, as most cultural commentators have talked about since the Enlightenment, we've been slowly heading towards what we would define now as being post-Christian, um, where m- probably now the more dominant worldview in our society is not necessarily Christian first and also isn't propping up the church or helping the church in any way. And so what that's created, um, you know, especially I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole history of, of, evangelicalism but you know when you start looking at like the neo-orthodoxy movement and all those sorts of things there's been a creation of an us versus them that has developed in our country that you're kind of alluding to that's even created this tension that we need to have we need to even comment you know uh have a commentary on these three things and so the the tendency has definitely been the first of those three i think you've said uh of isolation let me just let's retreat let's create our own subculture you know, maybe the more eloquent way I've heard some say, let's create an alternative community or an alternative society, uh, be countercultural. Um, but we really, in doing so, like you said, we, we have no real mark on culture or society. Um, or in rebelling against that, we swung the pen- pendulum the other way. And yeah, let's just embrace culture and we're not really shaping it. It's then shaping us. Um, and I would even say right now, we could, we're not, we're not going to talk about this in this episode, I, you know, but the first thing that came to mind as you were talking about that was even, you know, technology, for instance, this is a cultural artifact that's been introduced. Most evangelical churches that are seeking relevancy have had a wholesale adoption of technology at all costs, not realizing uh, that in many ways, technology is shaping us more than we can shape the use of technology for for good. That's a big conversation. But, um, and then, yeah, we, we talked then about um, engaging and transforming. So uh, maybe just stepping back, I wanted to make that note that part of what's created that is culture shifted rather drastically um, in Western society in Europe, Canada, America, Australia, um, where this has even been a deal. And um, with that, I love those three. Um, and just understanding, um, you know, I think we were talking about this recently. I, I love Tim Keller has a very similar list. I think he has four instead of three, but they're almost the exact same in his book called Sinner Church. But one of the things I love is he talks about the fact that Christians do have a more nuanced view of culture, but um, in the sense that they step, we step in and we look at the culture around us. We look at ourselves, anybody who's creating a cultural artifact to shape culture, so to speak. And we look and we understand that if we have a truly biblical sense, if we have been isolated 
and are being shaped by God's word. That everyone is created uh, in the image of God. We start in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3. We've all been created in God's image. To, and part of that is, you know, he's a creator God that's created us to be creators as well. Um, we create cultural artifacts. We shape culture. He's, he's designed us to be that way. Adam and Eve were designed to be that way. Um, but then also we've all, getting to Genesis 3, we've all have a fallen nature. And I love what he says if we understand that and appreciate that, that really gives us, allows us to lean towards that third thing that you're describing, where we realize and say, uh, I can step into the world and any, you know, anyone who's creating a cultural artifact, any piece of art or media or anything that I pick up that's an artifact of our, of our society, um, even if they don't realize it, even if they're not a believer, because they've been created in the image of God, we believe that if we dig deep enough, and that's really what this podcast is all going to be exploring. If I go looking to find God, even in the people who don't think they would, would never confess that they believe in him, I'm going to find something pointing to the transcendent and to God uh, just by our very nature. We, we feel like that's part of us. We, we can't, there's a limit to our creativity that's going to always point in some direction towards transcendence. And then on the flip side, even the Christian who wants to retreat and isolate and say, let's create our own subculture that we're still fallen and any cultural inter, you know, artifact that we introduce is going to be sinful too, which is part of the village. You talk about in Night Shyamalan's, you know, that, uh, you, you can isolate and evil still going to find you <laughs> and whether you like it or not, because we can't detach ourselves from our sinful nature and anything that we create uh, is never going to be as uh, perfect as we'd like to think it is, even if we retreat away from the scary dark world out there. Um, and so I would say maybe to summarize what, what I'm saying and what I think you're getting at is the church uh, in response to an ever um, kind of post-enlightenment, post-Christian reality has created this dualism of sacred and secular. And what we're really getting at is bashing that, that divide and saying, uh, no, <laughs> no, uh, we have a God who can be found anywhere. Uh, maybe, would you maybe expand on that? Because I know from talking to you, that is, that is your heartbeat. And that's something that you, you pound your chest about because you are passionate about it. Well, you said those words that have been ringing in my ear the whole time you've been talking. Um, <laughs> We have what we really need is one of those big fat pink erasers that we have when we were children in kindergarten, uh, because we need to erase the line that we have drawn between sacred and secular, because that line does not exist. We live in a sacred world. The incarnation teaches us this world is a place we can live and move and have our being, where God gives us life and breath and everything else. I mean, that's the whole point of. Of, of, you know, the incarnation. And so I think we've truly missed how important that incarnation is and how that incarnation should drive the way we live, the way we love, and the way we encounter and engage, and, you know, all of those things. Um, you know that I love the poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, <laughs> where she says, earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Um, I, I, that's what this podcast is about to me, too, is, is you know what? I, I've got no problem with blackberries. I love them <laughs> um, in every shape, form, and fashion. Uh, but why would I 
waste my time with blackberries when I can be feasting on this divine gift of continued incarnation and of continued revelation. And, and so, um, and I, I want to, you know, God wishes that none would perish and that all would come to repentance. So he hasn't stopped reaching out. You were, you were, you know, alluding to this a moment ago, God still writes with pagan pens and he still paints with pagan paintbrushes. And, you know, he prints in pagan publishers and, you know, because this world, you know, he, he is alive. And you also pointed out the fact that evil is alive and it is. And so that's why we have to go out and we have to be discerning. We have to be uh, cognizant. We have to be um, alert and awake and alive. And, and we have to be, we have to be anticipating. There's a great line. I don't know if it's in Keith Anderson's book. I think it is in Keith Anderson's book on the spirituality of listening. He basically says, either God continues to speak or we believe that he has nothing left to say. I'll preach. That's awesome. I know. And the moment I read it, I stopped. I highlighted it. I started writing it. I, I don't ever want to leave that. He, either God is still speaking or we assume he has nothing left to say. And I'm just going to tell you, brother, if he has nothing left to say, <laughs> we're in some deep stuff yeah no that's thank god i know he still speaks <laughs> yeah i, I think you're, you're kind of describing like a holy curiosity then like yes. uh you know which yeah you were as you were talking to i was thinking uh you know i love i'm a big poetry nerd and uh wendell berry has has a poem actually called how to be a how to be a poet and that's one of his quotes that there are no unsacred places, you know, that there's only sacred places and desecrated places, uh, but nothing, you know, if we really go looking is, is unsacred. And uh, you know, and I think there's a, there's a fascinating, you know, but I think because of that, and obviously uh, I'm not going to get into the totally unpacking everything that Barry's getting into with that beautiful <laughs> quote, uh, but uh, I think you're talking about a holy curiosity that we go out um, every day, like trying to find God. So like whether I, when I step out of my house, when I open the book, when I, you know, pick up my Amazon fire stick, uh, you know, wherever I'm at, I my have Apple this TV whole, remote. what'd you say? My Apple TV remote. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. You got <laughs> to rep your, uh, whatever it is, you know, you're kind of having this holy curiosity. And I think if we're getting at something, that's, that's part of what our beef is is that Christians in some ways stop. Um, it's almost like we, we kind of start acting like we have it all figured out and we stop going to look for God and we stop waking up maybe being surprised that God might be working and might be doing something in the world differently than the little box that we've drawn him in, that we have no room for God to color outside the lines that we've decided uh, that he's going to be within. And what does it look like to live with a holy curiosity? And we don't even listen in church anymore either, by the way. We're not paying attention anywhere because we've already decided that this is the way it, this is the way it works. This is the way it's shaped. This is the way it's all structured. Um, and, and I'm done. Yeah. And that's sad. You know, you talk about Wendell Berry. Let's throw Mary Oliver into that. <laughs> Mary Oliver says, pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. That should be the life of every believer. 
Because you know what? When we pay attention and when we, we will be astonished and when we are astonished, you know what? The joy that is in our hearts and the joy that shows up on our faces and in our eyes and in our, in our, um, in our gestures, people are going to want to know what in the world is wrong with you. And you're going to be like, man, have I got a story to tell you? <laughs> yeah. And that'll also be because we were willing uh, and able to listen to their story first. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, you, you know, we're just like compounding one literature reference after another. I was thinking, I was also thinking of Friedrich Buechner, who's like, you know, oh. been, I mean, talks so much about listening to your life. Um, you know, that's kind of the theme of so much of his writing. But, you know, he has a poem called Found, where he talks a lot about that to, to, to pay attention, you know, like he talks about start paying attention to what's going on around you. And some of it you're going to be in love with, you know, pardon my language, he talks about some of it's going to scare the hell out of us. But if you start paying attention, he says, you know, to the good dream, to the coincidence, to the, to your, the name on, you know, your name on someone else's lips, to the things that go around, the things that bring tears to your eyes, the things that bring you life, uh, even the smallest things might have the greatest clues. Mm -hmm. And if we start looking, uh, you know, and I think for our spiritually curious audience too, not just those that grew up in the Christian subculture, that's why we go exploring because, uh, man, God, God might, uh, might surprise us. Well, and uh, well, if we start looking, we're going to find him. I think he's definitely in the business of continuing to surprise us. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we are basically LSI, man. We are life scene investigators. I mean, it is our responsibility to go out in whatever situation we find ourselves and to be curious, to be attentive, to be alert and, and to continue to be transformed. I mean, isn't that what Paul says? Do not let the, you know, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, J.B. Phillips says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. <laughs> you know, instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind and see if our minds are continually renewed, what does it then say we'll be able to do? We'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And again, I can't, I have to, when I say that, I have to go back in my brain to where, where the scriptures teach us that he wishes that none would perish and that all would come yeah. to repentance. God is still loving and his loving comes in with every train that docks at the station. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I just don't know why we're not waiting for it anymore. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm sure some some would be listening to this, and they're going to label us mystics right away. Yeah. So, but some things, some labels I can't I can't evade. I mean, yeah. I'm just saying. Exactly. Yeah, there is. I think again, I think there is something beautiful there, and I love what we're describing. And I think for our listeners, that's going to really be what a lot of this podcast is going to be. Uh, is not just us talking theory. Uh, a lot of our episodes are going to be us engaging, uh, especially again, a lot of a lot of pop culture. Uh, but a lot of um, media and art and looking to, as we look at shows we love to watch on Netflix or movies or literature, whatever it is, some headlines that might pop up, uh, interviews that we do, looking for God and things and kind of having fun together. Uh, you you uh, watch more uh, media than about anyone I know. And I don't say that in a judgmental tone, but, but you meaningfully engage it. And so I'm excited, you know, we're going to be letting you do a lot of reviews for people um, and a lot of episodes, but before we get into all of that, to maybe start to wrap up this episode, 
why don't we, why don't you give an example? I'm going to give an example. Why don't you give an example of what it looks like to show this curiosity? What's, what's a, a, a cultural artifact or a, you know, a piece of art that you've stepped into and found God there that might surprise some people um, because it, it's not where they would expect to, to see God. Well, um, this is the part where we get ourselves in trouble. <laughs> uh, you know, people aren't going to, I don't know. They might, they might forgive us for a few things, but then when we get into this part, um, so I, I think probably what I'll talk about today is, uh, the movie, the gentleman, um, the gentleman, uh, is, <laughs> it is NSFW for all of you out there who are concerned. It is not suitable for the workplace environment. Uh, it will not be suitable in front of your children and let, yeah, you know, all those kinds of things. But, you know, it's just an absolutely beautiful Guy Ritchie movie <laughs> because Guy Ritchie has just this crazy gift for uh, quirky dialogue and he has this ability to just put together a story that is so complex and so convoluted uh, <laughs> that you have to pay such close attention. I mean, it's a great attention training film. And, and you know, so we get into this film and we've been introduced to a couple of people. Uh, Michael, played by Matthew McConaughey, is the uh, kingpin of the marijuana trade in the UK, in the Great Britain. And um, his right-hand man is played by Charlie Hunnam, and his name is Ray. And um, so anyway, we also meet this other guy who is working on the streets of London. They call him the coach. He's played by Colin Farrell. And he's trying to help these uh, young men learn how to fight and learn how to box. And uh, he's trying to keep them from getting into too much trouble. Uh, well, one particular evening, uh, the coach uh, gets a phone call from one of his guys who says, hey, you're not going to believe what we found. Uh, and they found a marijuana lair full of, you know, the best weed that's available in the UK. And they created a pipe. Uh, they created a fight porn video while they were there that they've already released onto the internet. And they took a bunch of the marijuana back to the boxing ring, back to the gym. And he says, you did what? <laughs> who, who gave you this idea? Why in the world would you think of doing this? You stay right where you're at and I'll be right there. Now coach was in the middle of something, but he went ahead and went back to take care of his boys. He goes in and I mean, he just lets them have it. By the way, the ugliest sweatsuits ever in a movie uh, <laughs> coach and all of his boys are wearing. And so they're in there and he's like, you can't do this. Do you even know whose weed that is? And they're like, no, we don't know. And well, while he's there, he finds out whose it is. It belongs to Michael. And Michael is the guy played by Matthew McConaughey that runs that whole trade. He's well-known everywhere. So he goes, so Colin Farrell's character coach goes to see Ray. And he says, Ray, I want to make amends. I want to be the person who takes care of the issues. And I want you to leave all of my guys alone. I want to make up for their failure. Mm. And Ray basically says, well, there's going to be a few things I'm going to need you to do. And so uh, he takes care of those things and those things that he has to take care of are not something that we want to talk about either. So he takes care of these things and you finally see him in the backyard uh, with its coach and Ray and Fletcher played by Hugh Grant. And uh, Fletcher gets in trouble all the time. He's an investigator who's just out to make money. And so 
they take care of the final thing they need to take care of in the backyard of Ray's house. And coach looks at him and says, so we're good, right? And he says, yep, we're good. He said, we're clean. I don't have to do anything else. He says, no, your guys are free. And then Ray looks at him and he says, well, I hope to see you again soon. And coach looks at him and goes, to be honest with you, I hope I never see you again. <laughs> and then he leaves, goes into the back door, out the front door, and goes to get in his car. And as he gets into his car, Colin Farrell's character, Coach, sees two Russian hitmen walking in the back gate, ready to kill Ray and Fletcher. He's got a decision to make. And so, thanks to himself for a second, he grabs his gun, then he follows them into that back gate, and then you hear two pops of a gun and you see Ray and Fletcher still standing there. So what has happened? The camera turns and there's coach and he holds up four fingers in the sky and turns around and walks away. It is absolutely one of my favorite moments I have ever seen in a film because it describes who we are supposed to be for each other. We don't just take care of issue number one, issue number two, and issue number three. And then when we think the air is clear, we just walk away. No, if there's an issue number four, whether we were signed and contracted to take care of it, we take care of it anyway, because we are the people who are always willing to do the next thing, the fourth thing, the thing that will continue to keep things the way they should be, keep things at peace. Now, <laughs> there's lots of ways you can break that down. They just killed two people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, it's the beauty of what it means to be willing to stand in the gap, to uh, provide uh, atonement for your gentlemen who have made a mistake. And it's also your willingness, even though you don't ever wanna see this guy ever again, you don't want ill to happen to him. And so you do the next thing. I know that was a long explanation. No. Absolutely brilliant film. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm sitting here, that's incredible. And uh, I was even thinking of Jesus's words at the end of Matthew 5 and uh, how much, you know, you know, if someone had you go a mile, go two, you know, kind of that same, that same mentality. So, yeah, I feel like uh, you could start, start a whole like four finger movement. Well, and we already have, to be honest okay. with you. Um, I told this story to some guys at the uh, Christian Camp Leaders Conference back in uh, January. And uh, what was so funny, I was at that camp back about a month and a half ago. And, you know, they're just starting up their mowers. And here comes one of the mowers by with these four fingers in the air. <laughs> I was like, my man. And so we just, I mean, every time I see these guys, I just sling up four fingers. And, of course, I've started doing that with my friends. And yeah, I mean, we are a four finger movement. That's, that's what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. No, what a cool, what a cool story. Um, and now I have not watched that. So now you've got my, uh, you've piqued my curiosities and I've got to watch it. And uh, um, well, I've got, yeah, my, my example comes from literature. Um, you know, one of my favorite authors ever is a guy named Raymond Carver, um, you know, wrote, you know, died in the eighties, wrote a lot of short stories, a little bit of poetry um, you know, very, not, not exciting literature to read in the sense that you're not going to feel inspired, very depressing at times, uh, very much depicted the, uh, downfall of modernity and, uh, just blue collar people struggling to, to make a life. 
but I think there's something beautiful about that. And he never follows kind of the, the plot arc at all. Um, it's very much a slice of life and everything. You, you, you're not always sure where it's going. If it even really, you have to dig for a point sometimes, but maybe my favorite uh, short story he has is one called a small good thing. And it's incredibly obscure because the story is all about, it opens up with a mother buying a cake for her son. Um, who's she's at a bakery by orders a cake for her son. She doesn't back buy it. She orders it. And the scene shifts and her son actually gets hit by a car. Mm. Um, and so much, a lot of the actual story is them going to uh, the hospital um, as he's in critical care, uh, her and her husband seeing if her, their, their son's going to live. And it's all these scenes, they're depressing scenes as they're, they're working through. You can tell her, their marriage isn't what it even needs to be, uh, kind of the quintessential American life where they've been just going through things to survive. But every time they come home to take a break, you know, over these several day stretch, uh, just to get sleep, the phone keeps ringing and it's the baker. And he keeps calling them to remind them, like, why didn't you pick up to your cake? Do you not care about your son? He's, he's throwing out all these things and uh, not even always identifying him, himself. And it's uh, this background that keeps happening and happening and happening. Finally, uh, over the course of the short story, uh, the son passes away, tragically. Uh, they come home and as they're grieving and mourning and just in their hurt, the phone rings again. And... Uh, they pick it up. It's the baker again with another ominous message. The wife, you know, the mother scream, scream, starts screaming. She's just lost it at this point. She's so angry. She, you know, she says, let's, let's go. They get in their car. They drive to the bakery ready to kill this guy. I mean, they are ready to kill the baker out of their hurt and out of their pain. Uh, it's, it's early morning hours. I mean, it's, you know, they can't even believe he's calling them. It's, you know, like one, two in the morning. They go to the front, can't get in. They drive around the back. They knock on the door. Uh, the baker opens thinking that it's someone drunk, not knowing where they're at. It's them. They char hard charge in, ready to kill the baker. Uh, this is the moment. And as they begin to explain why they're there and what they've come to do, the baker just obviously is incredibly distraught. And what ends up happening in the brilliance of Carver's literature and writing is two people who are incredibly broken meeting themselves in the midst of their brokenness this baker starting to confess that he's working 16 hours a day. He doesn't have a family. He's tired. He's broken. He's hurting. These, this, this husband and wife who've just lost their, their child and are grieving. And in the midst of this, the baker doesn't know what else up, what else to do. He pulls up two chairs in the midst of the kitchen to this table where he's been rolling dough. He removes it and he starts pulling out cinnamon rolls out of, and he says, surely you need to eat. Surely you just need something to eat right now. And he pulls out and he just keeps feeding them these hot rolls uh, in the early morning hours. You know, he even uses the terminology under fluorescent lights and they're, they don't want to leave. They just, they're just sharing their lives and their brokenness eating together. And you, you kind of have to, to fully get it. You have to read the short story, but I remember reading it for the first time and I just broke down and I cried and I said, this is the church. Carver, Carver could not be, I mean, he's the furthest thing from a Christian, but as he's describing, I'm like, this is the church. This is what, this is what we are. We come together and we find community in our brokenness. And the best place that that's, that we find that is over this meal called communion. As we break bread and we remember 
that a God who's done something in, in the midst of and, and done something for our brokenness. But it's in our commonality that we find together in our brokenness, uh, in the frailty of our humanity, in our pain that really draws us together. That's really what more than any other place in the world. That's what the church has always been the centering point of. And yeah, I remember the first time I read that, I was like, God is, God is here. I, I see him describing uh, the community that God created for us uh, in the church. So anyways, that's my, my example. Uh, if you've never read Carver, you need to. Uh, he's got more great short stories than I can even describe in one podcast. I could just do a podcast on Carver's. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. Well, I tell you, man, um, the table matters. Every table matters. Amen. Because every table is that place where we come together and we experience God's love, as I've heard it and read it, uh, that is made, God's love made delicious, nutritious, and restorative. <laughs> I like that a lot. That's pretty oh, it's cool. unbelievable. The first time I heard it, I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> it was just delicious and nutritious. And then when uh, I believe it was Margaret Feinberg and Taste and See that added that and restorative. Oh my goodness. I was just went crazy. I've been doing this um, workshop called Soul Food the last three years, talking about the importance of table and the importance of communion around the table. I tell you another thing that came to my mind and that as you were talking is, is community is communion is where we remember. I'll never forget when I read years ago that it's also where we are remembered together. So there they are being remembered mm. as humans. And I mean, you can't pick anything much better than cinnamon rolls. <laughs> I know. I know, man. Yeah. So any, but for anybody who's uh, like us that does kind of a decentralized movement, there you go. You might have a new, uh, a new way to, to serve the sacrament of communion. <laughs> cinnamon rolls. There we go again. Getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm getting us in trouble. Well, hey, I'm going to let you have the final word. We're obviously... Uh, going to start recording a lot of these episodes and start having a lot more fun. We've, we've kind of laid the groundwork, start exploring these themes and just almost like we just did start talking about, uh, you know, different pop culture and things that, that are shaping us and where we're, we're pursuing and finding God. Why don't you give the final word uh, just as an encouragement to folks that are beginning this journey and maybe never thought of this, what it looks like to begin to step into holy curiosity. Uh get ready because he's going to show up and our lives will be changed. And right here at this place, through this podcast, we can come together and tell those stories. And maybe just maybe we'll look, we'll look more like Jesus every time we come together. Towers, antenna, transistors, radio waves, 35 millimeter, 780p, 1080p, 4K, and Real D 3D. Analog, digital, Dolby Surround and Atmos, IMAX and Sony Dynamic, Beats, Sennheiser, Ultimate Ears, Bose, Audio-Technica, Condonast, Viacom, Time Warner, Gannett, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, Macmillan, Motorola, Apple, Samsung, LG, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, Edge, Strangers, You, Me, Friends. God is on the air, in the air, in print, and transmitting.